Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today we're excited to hear from Don Bradley, who will discuss issues raised in his forthcoming book called The Lost 116 Pages, Rediscovering the Book of Lehi. Don is a writer, editor, and researcher specializing in early Mormon history. He recently performed an internship with the Joseph Smith Papers Project and is nearing completion of a course toward an MA in history at Utah State University. I think you'll find it is remarkable how much information Don has been able to stitch together to come up with a good understanding of what was contained in the last 116 pages of the Book of Mormon manuscript. One last comment before we begin. Please remember that dialogue depends on the generosity of its listeners and subscribers to keep it financially viable. You can visit us at dialoguejournal.com to make an online contribution. Thank you for your support. And now to our podcast featuring Don Bradley speaking to a gathering of the Miller Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California. Tonight, we are privileged to hear from Don Bradley. I first met Don about, I think it was 12 or 13 years ago when he was a graduate student at Utah State working on his master's and studying uh, with Phil Barlow, I think. And I was giving a presentation on Joseph Smith, one of his cases, and Don struck me as someone who really was bright, somewhat reserved, but really a nice, genuine person. I still remember that. Don is one of these people that is simply an incredible investigator. He could have been a detective, he could have been a lawyer. I think there's a lot of things that lawyers and investigators do that are, that are common. If you're going to make a case in the law, you have to figure out what evidence there is that might suggest this outcome and what evidence suggests that outcome. And uh, ideally, a good lawyer is going to be fair because if he's not, the other side will tear him apart. And that's what Don does with his research. He comes up with amazing things that a lot of people have never really quite put two and two together. And he'll pull them together and they'll make complete sense. He's such a good researcher that I think he probably has set the record for the longest time working on his master's degree. Uh, it, it, it wasn't actually 12 or 13 years. It was more like eight. So. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, I could swear it was 12 or 13 years ago. Maybe. Anyway, whatever it was, he is the proud possessor of a thesis that's been accepted. All he has to do now is learn Spanish, and he's got his master's degree, and he's working on that. Along the way, Don has served an internship with the Joseph Smith Papers Project. He's published articles and given presentations on the translation of the Book of Mormon, Plural Marriage Before Nauvoo, and Joseph Smith's Grand Fundamental Principles of Mormonism. He's working on an extensive analysis of the Kinderhook Plates with uh, Mark Asher's McGee, and his first book, The Lost 116 Pages, Reconstructing the Missing Contents of the Book of Mormon, is slated to be published by Greg Coford Books. So we'll all be looking forward to that one. And when we were at dinner earlier today, Armand Moss uh, gave Don a real good tribute that when he was, Armand was working on one of his last books, he had Don do some research for him, and it was well done and timely, and he's a 
appreciative to this day. So I'll be pleased to turn the time over to Don. Thank you. Um, once when I was giving a presentation on this subject, the um, person introducing me said I would be speaking on the lost 113 pages. So apparently even lost pages can get further lost. Um, but I'm, I'm going to speak about all 116. Um, actually, I would question that number. Uh, and if anyone wants to know in the Q&A why, I can maybe talk about that. So um, in trying to reconstruct the lost pages contents, I have an illustrious uh, predecessor. Um, no, not him. Not him. Him. Um, Mark Hoffman, uh, <laughs> one of the, uh, the last big thing that he was working on, the thing that actually brought all his giant house of cards crashing down on him and other people, uh, was that he was trying to uh, reconstruct in a different way than I'm trying to by, by forging a manuscript, uh, trying to recreate the lost pages. I've actually looked at his uh, notes that he recorded supposedly from the manuscript, and like they're terrible. Like they, I was hoping he had keyed in on so what some of the clues were to the lost pages contents, so that then maybe he, if, if he had a, a keen eye for that, then maybe it would help me, but he didn't get anything right. Um, so um, we, we all know what happens to people, though, who fail at this task. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life at Point of the Mountain, so hopefully I'll do better <laughs> this evening. So there are really two histories of the Lost Pages, which I'll be talking about uh, some this evening and some in my future book, where it might be two books actually divided along these lines. The histories are um, the history really that's really of the Lost Pages. So this is how did what was going on when the Lost Pages came forth? Uh, who was involved in the process? Say, as scribes, how did the translation process work? Did Joseph Smith use a seer stone? The interpreters? What was the time frame, etc.? There's also the history in the Lost Pages, so that's the narrative. And that's mostly what we'll be talking about tonight. But I will start with talking about some about the history of the Lost Pages. So one question um, would be who, when Joseph Smith starts translating, who is his first scribe? So the, the first scribe on the Lost 160, what becomes the Lost 116 Pages, would be the first scribe for the entire Book of Mormon. Uh, we get a really good, we get some really good clues on who that was from this statement by Emma Smith. So um, Emma says that while Joseph was translating, right, he would spell out things that he couldn't properly pronounce, like proper names. Uh, even the word Sariah, he could not pronounce at first, but had to spell it, and I would pronounce it for him. She then says in the same interview, once, one time while he was translating, he stopped suddenly pale as a sheet and said, Emma, did Jerusalem have walls around it? When I answered yes, he replied, oh, I was afraid I had been deceived. He had such a limited knowledge of history at that time that he did not even know that Jerusalem was surrounded by walls. Now, of course, uh, so, so the questions to consider would be, 
where in the Book of Mormon narrative does the name Sariah first appear, and where would the detail about Jerusalem's walls have appeared? What do, where does that appear? So in our manuscript, those things both make their appearance in First Nephi as uh, Lehi and his family leave Jerusalem, and then Nephi goes back and gets the plates. The problem is that First Nephi can't be the text referred to here because Joseph Smith had already translated the story of Lehi in the Lost Pages. He would have encountered the name Sariah multiple times already, would have been able to pronounce that. He would have already encountered the walls of Jerusalem in that narrative. And Emma, when First Nephi was translated, was actually down in harmony still. We don't have her handwriting on the First Nephi manuscript, which is still available, which means that the manuscript she was scribing for here was not the available manuscript of First Nephi. It was the Book of Lehi in the last 116 pages. So that means the very beginning, Joseph's first scribe for the whole project was his wife, Emma. So they were, as husband and wife, working together in this process. Another question that arises is, why did Martin Harris insist on taking the manuscript? Now, it's been assumed, and not entirely wrongly, that uh, it, was, it had something to do with his wife and her, and his desire to persuade her but look at just how insistent Martin Harris is, right? He asks, God says no. He asks, God says no. God's already said no twice. He's pestering God, right? And finally, the third time, the Lord relents, allows him to take the manuscript under certain conditions, which he violates, the manuscript disappears. So to get, the, the thing is there's no text, there's no historical source that tells us Here's why Martin Harris was so insistent on that. But we can actually figure out something that we're not explicitly told because they, there are rich clues here. So let's look at the uh, context. Uh, let's look at some of the, the translation chronology. Uh, so Joseph says that in his uh, history that Martin took dictation for him from about April 12th to about June 14th, 1828. Okay, so what else is going on at that time? So uh, if you, we look at what happens between those dates, right? That year was, uh, there was a strange sort of cli climatic event uh, that I've got a scholarly article about where it was far warmer that year than it was supposed to be. So ordinarily in upstate New York, the planting season starts very late. But that year, it started very early, and Don Enders, uh, who used to be with Church Historic Sites, has told me that because of that, the planting season that year was about mid-April to mid-June. So if you look back at the dates that Martin was down in Harmony, 100, you know, 150 miles or so from Joseph, uh, it's mid-April to mid-June. So guess who missed the planting season? on his own farm. Okay. Palmyra newspaper from May 8th, 1828, says that on that date, um, Martin's daughter Lucy Harris, not to be confused with his wife by the same name, married Flanders Dyke in Palmyra. So again, looking at these dates, who's, who's not there for the planting season on his farm? 
and his own daughter's wedding because he's scribing on this manuscript, Martin Harris. So he cannot go home empty-handed. He can't make, put his family through that level of sacrifice and then go home and say, oh, but if you could only see the manuscript, then you would understand. No, he has to have something to show for these sacrifices. He insists, he ends up taking the manuscript, manuscript disappears. So let's talk now about, uh, and there's much more that can be said on the history of the Lost Pages, uh, but let's talk now about the history in the Lost Pages, the narrative. No, this is, tape ears are not in the Lost Narrative that I can determine, but um, wait a minute, blank screens maybe, maybe there. Before I really go into the reconstruction, I wanted to mention that reconstructing what we can from the Lost Pages helps to understand very early Mormonism. We don't really have, we, we don't have any texts actually from this period of Mormon history that survived. The earliest texts we have are from 1829. Uh, well, no, that's not true. We have, um, we have one text from 1828, that is Doctrine and Covenants section three. Section three of the Doctrine and Covenants is a response to the manuscript loss. So the earliest Mormon scripture was what became the lost 116 pages. We're missing our earliest text. Um, so if we can figure out more of what was in that text, it has implications for understanding Mormon origins, for understanding how the, sort of the character of early Mormonism and how it unfolds. Now, uh, Jan Ships, the distinguished scholar of Mormon studies and or, or religious studies and has focused a lot on Mormon studies, um, she has tried to give a model for understanding the development of Mormon theology. Because Mormon theology, plainly, it's not just one thing. It's sort of a, a conglomeration of different things. And so she proposes that not necessarily entirely in chronological order, but roughly in chronological order, we have first a Christian primitivist phase. So beginning with the Book of Mormon, which the extant Book of Mormon text we have is translated 1829, going to 1831, and then, and then some beyond that as well. Uh, Hebraic phase that starts in 1831 and goes to stretches somewhere into the Nauvoo period, and an esoteric phase, so a phase dealing with sort of like a, a concept of higher truths or secret practices and rituals, so think temple, right? Uh, mostly in the Nauvoo period. And um, with, we're gonna let's bracket this model, talk about what was in the Lost Pages, and then come back to this model toward the end and see how what we've learned, what, what does what we've learned say about this period up here before Jan Ships' first layer. The early, we, we have some early indications that the Lost Pages were very Judaic uh, in contrast to this sort of Christian primitivist emphasis that we have in the extant text. Uh, John H. Gilbert, who was the typesetter for the 1830 Book of Mormon and had a phenomenal memory, he left all kinds of recollections 50 years later about what the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon looked like, the, the handwriting, the markings on it, the punctuation, and those have been borne out by Royal Skousen's research. 
Um, this, is, this is his memory of how he first hears about the Book of Mormon. So he says, late in 1827 or early in 1828, and this is the time period when the, um, Joseph Smith is doing some of his early work with the Lost Pages, was the first I heard Martin Harris speak of Joe's finding the plates. The plates, as represented at the time, purported to be a history of the lost tribes of Israel, and not establishing a new religion, but confirming the Old Testament. So in Gilbert's memory at that time, Martin Harris isn't talking about this text in New Testament terms, saying we're going to restore the New Testament church, it's Christian primitivism. He's talking, he's really emphasizing the relationship between this new book of scripture and the Old Testament. So we get a sense that Martin sees it as a sort of Hebraic text. Same time period, uh, discussed six years later by Joseph Smith's neighbor down in Harmony, Hezekiah McCune, was also an in-law to the, the Emma, to Isaac Hale's family, uh, Emma's family. Hezekiah McCune, so this is one of the earliest affidavits on Mormonism. Hezekiah McCune states that in conversation with Joseph Smith Jr., he, Smith, said that he was a prophet sent by God to bring in the Jews. So again, a recollection from the same time period, we've got not only Martin Harris giving a very Hebraic cast to the project that they're working on, we've also got Joseph Smith doing so. He's talking about the work that I'm doing will help to gather the Jews. Getting into some of the specifics of the, what time do we, okay, that's a, this is somewhat a familiar one, I'm gonna skip it. So, um, so Joseph Smith in Nauvoo once was answering a question about that he was, one of the saints asked him a question, if the peoples of the Book of Mormon are descended from Manasseh, why is, how can the Book of Mormon be the stick of Ephraim? How does that make sense? And Franklin D. Richards, who became an apostle, was nearby, he overheard this conversation, and he recalled Joseph saying, roughly, this Ishmael and his family were of the lineage of Ephraim, and Lehi's sons took Ishmael's daughters for wives, and this has how they have grown together a multitude of nations in the midst of the earth. If we had those 116 pages of manuscript which Martin Harris got away with, you would know all about it, for Ishmael's ancestry was made very plain therein, that is how it came about that Ishmael's lineage was not given in the Book of Mormon as well as Lehi's. So this is one of the only historical sources that people had, uh, had previously dug up and that has really been circulated. There are several others, uh, and we're going to talk today about one of those in particular, a particularly rich source, and that is um, Fayette Latham's interview with Joseph Smith Sr. So uh, Fayette Latham was a Palmyra businessman, and he, early in 1830, when the Book of Mormon was at press, but not yet available for, to, to purchase, right, he went to the Smith home, the Joseph Smith Sr. home, to ask about the book, to find out what he could. He later recorded uh, an extensive account of an interview where Joseph Smith Sr. told him all kinds of details about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Uh, some of it is obviously garbled, and some, much of it, though, 
we can um, confirm from other sources that were not available at the time that Fayette Lafon wrote and published his account. So for instance, um, scholars had discussed for a long time when Joseph, after Joseph lost the manuscript, where did he pick up the translation again? Did he pick up, did he go back to first Nephi, pick up there, replace the lost pages, and then go on from there? Or did he just continue on from where he left off in the narrative, go to the end of Moroni, and then go and do first Nephi through Words of Mormon? Most uh, scholars until fairly recently had favored the idea that he, he just goes back to the chronological beginning again, starts with first Nephi. A recent manuscript evidence in the last couple decades has shown that actually Joseph had picked up where he left off. There are two 19th century sources that tell us that, though, that had already said that. One of them is Joseph Smith's sister, Catherine Smith Salisbury. She's interviewed in the 1890s. She says the angel told him to pick up where he had left off. Uh, decades before that, Fayette Latham had reported that Joseph Smith had resumed the translation where he'd left off. So he's the earliest source telling us that, and it's now confirmed by evidence from the available manuscripts. After Joseph Sr. gave Fayette Latham an account of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, he then starts giving him the narrative of the Book of Mormon. And interestingly, when he does this, he gives, he mostly focuses his account on the early part of the Book of Mormon narrative, the part that was covered by the lost 116 pages. Once he gets past the lost 116 pages, he just gives a couple sentences summing up the whole rest of the book, and that's it. It appears that Joseph Smith Sr. was actually telling him more about the period of the lost pages because that part was not going to be richly detailed in the published book. And when you look at Fayette Latham's account, he, he will tell a familiar story, parts of which, as, as you'll see, are clearly garbled, but then parts of which they, they fit hand in glove with the extant narrative but they're not in our present Book of Mormon. So I think um, I had, there was another Word document that was with this. This will be hard for you to read, but. So, so this is Fayette Latham talking about giving an account of the brass plates. Now he doesn't remember that it's actually brass and he doesn't remember any names. He apparently never reads the Book of Mormon. He, he actually doesn't give one single name in his narration he usually says they. So he says, um, I'm gonna lean down here. Uh, this is Fayette Leif from reporting what Joseph Sr. had said about Lehi leaving Jerusalem and then going to get the brass plates, uh, Nephi going to get the brass plates. There was one virtuous man among them whom the Lord warned in a dream to take his family and depart, which he accordingly did. And after traveling three days, he remembered he had left some papers in the office where he'd been an officer so you can see, not exactly right here, some garbling, which he thought would be of use to him in his journeys. He sent his son back, he only remembers one son, to the city to get them. And when his son arrived, it was night. And he found the citizens having, the, he found the citizens had been having a great feast and were all drunk. 
After searching a long time, he found him, the man with the record, lying in the street dead, drunk, clothed in his official habiliments, his sword having a gold hilt and chain lying by his side, and this is the same that was found with the gold plates. Finding that he could do nothing with him in that situation, he drew the sword, cut off the officer's head, cast off his own outer garments, and assuming those of the officer, returned to the office where the papers were readily obtained, which he with which he returned to where his father was waiting for him. So we've got the basic skeleton of the narrative there, and then we've got some obvious confusion about of memory about what exactly this record was. He thinks it's a bunch of papers. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I put that in there. <laughs> okay. He, the, the thing that's um, particularly interesting um, in this account is he says that there's a great feast going on in Jerusalem at the time. The Book of Mormon text that we have doesn't say that. It doesn't explain why Laban is drunk. He's just drunk. Um, but if we look more closely, we not only have Laban saying the citizens had been having a great feast, uh, we've got, as he alludes to, we've got Laban wearing like full armor. And Laban's apparently some sort of military official or something. Nephi and his brother say he can command 50. But why is he going out drinking dressed in like full military uniform? He hadn't just been out drinking. He'd been out by night among the elders of the Jews drinking, which is a little bit different than just being out drinking. Zoram doesn't bat an eye when Laban wants to take the sacred record late that night out to the gates of the city. So there are other things that would certainly fit with this idea that there was some sort of religious festival going on. Uh, we've also got uh, Lehi offers a sacrifice. Uh, he offers a couple sacrifices uh, when, as, they, as they leave Jerusalem or arrive the first stops that they're going to, and then after his son's return which could also point to a festival context. But if there were a Jewish religious festival going on here, what feast or festival would this be? So we've got some clues in the text. Uh, so first, the timing. So uh, there's this phrase that's so familiar that we really don't stop to think about what it means. Nephi says very early in his narrative that his father was called as a prophet in the commencement of the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. Now, um, the, that, that statement is actually so rich. One of the things that it tells us that's separate from this idea of a festival context is it tells us what had just barely happened before Lehi is called. And that is, if you, if you consider, if you look in the Bible and consider how did Zedekiah become king of Judah? Zedekiah became king of Judah because Nebuchadnezzar II sent in an army, deposed Jeconiah as king, and installed Zedekiah as king. So the city of Jerusalem is sacked, right? It surrenders, and so this is, this makes a lot of sense out of why there are all these prophets running around. It mentions in First Nephi other prophets. 
you know, prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem and why Lehi would have his experience at this very time. It also tells us um, the, the biblical accounts in the, the Deuteronomic history tell us that Jeconiah was deposed right around the end of the Hebrew calendar year, which would place uh, the commencement of Zedekiah's reign basically at the Jewish New Year. The first month is Nisan. Nisan is also the, the month of Passover. Lehi and Nephi, in their uh, narrations, they frame their journey as an exodus. They model their telling on, of it on the biblical exodus. Uh, when Lehi recapitulates his calling vision to his sons, his, his initial theophany, in 1 Nephi 10, he, he goes over um, you know, elements of what he had seen, that he had seen the destruction of Jerusalem, that he had seen that a Messiah would come, all things that it talks about in 1 Nephi 1. But then he also describes to them having seen the Lamb of God baptized. Now this suggests that the, since the other elements that he's describing were elements of his initial calling vision, it suggests that that calling vision had included this vision of the Lamb of God, which would fit again with Passover setting. The Spirit tells Nephi, it is better that one man should perish than that a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. Almost identical wording to what Caiaphas says when he prophesies the, uh, about Jesus, how Jesus would need to die. So um, the Fayette Latham uh, Joseph Smith Sr. interview may provide a little key here for better understanding parts of the Book of Mormon text. So a Passover setting for Lehi's calling and Nephi acquiring the brass plates would put the narratives of their deliverance in a Christological context. So the Book of Mormon would not just be starting with the story of like, the temporal deliverance of Nephi and Lehi, put that in this larger, against this larger backdrop, and you've got sort of hints toward a fuller Christology, that, that Jesus and his sacrifice are there in the background of this narrative from the start. Uh, a question that scholars have raised, uh, moving on, about the, about the Book of Mormon, that the Book of Mormon, the question that the Book of Mormon raises in its text, but doesn't answer in its extant text, is how did the Nephites acquire the Jaredite interpreters? We know how the Jaredites get the interpreters. We have this very detailed story of the brother of Jared going up on the mountain, and the Lord gives him the interpreters there. But then later, we have Nephite kings, uh, Mosiah, definitely Mosiah II, uh, there's, there's some indication in the text that Benjamin, his father, also had them. And there are hints that his father, Mosiah I, likely had them. But the text never tells us how, they, how these interpreters got to the Nephites, even though that seems like kind of a big deal. Um, so Sidney Sperry, decades ago, 
I was writing about the interpreters and said, now the interesting question arises, how and when did the Urim and Thummim, the interpreters, leave the hands of the Jaredite people and get into the hands of the Nephite prophets? Later, John Tretness, who I believe just recently <coughs> passed away, um, called this one of the unanswered questions of the Book of Mormon. So why is this question unanswered? Why doesn't the Book of Mormon tell us how the interpreters got from the Jaredites to the Nephites? Well, if we look at the time frame, right, if we've, we've got the whole story of Mosiah II, who had the interpreters, we've got the end of the life of King Benjamin in uh, Mormon's abridgment, right? The, the first part, Benjamin's reign, his early reign, is missing. Uh, it is covered very briefly in the small plates. The small plates are just a substitute for the lost pages, which were the detailed historical narrative for that period. So we have very little of this, the early story of Mosiah I and then the early reign of King Benjamin. And so if the interpreters had been recovered by the Nephites during that time period, we wouldn't necessarily expect to have it in our text. And I would submit that this is what happened, that that story was lost. But fortunately, someone appears to have known these details and relayed them to someone else. And that was, again, Joseph Smith Sr. in this same interview with Fayette Latham. So as part of Joseph Smith Sr.'s narration, at least as well as Fayette Latham could later remember it, before I read this, keep in mind that um, Fayette Latham was not LDS, never became LDS. There's no indication that he ever read the Book of Mormon. And like I said, in his entire narration, he doesn't use a single name from the Book of Mormon at all. He does not appear to know the names. He doesn't really know the text, but somebody's talked to him about the text and he gives what he remembers. So he reports that Joseph Sr. had said, they found, so context, this is sometime after they've arrived in the New World. The Nephites are being led by the Liahona, and they're on some sort of journey. And uh, he, he calls, he always refers to whoever he's talking about as they, just the, the third person plural, even when he's clearly talking as he does here about an individual. They found something in which they did not know the use. But when they went into the tabernacle, a voice said, what have you got in your hand there? Now we know that it's an individual because it's a person carrying the object in their hand. They replied that they did not know, but had come to inquire. When the voice said, put it on your face and put your face in a skin and you will see what it is. They did so and could see everything of the past, present and future. And it was the same spectacles that Joseph found with the gold plates. The gold ball, he's referring to the Liahona, stopped here and ceased to direct them any further. So um, this account, if we give credence to this report of the Joseph Smith Senior interview, explain first, how, it gives us a narrative of how the Nephites got the Jaredite interpreters, which is otherwise missing from our Book of Mormon text. Second, it would explain another unanswered question in the Book of Mormon, and that is, why is it that the Liahona is used extensively early on, and then when we're out of the Lost Pages period, we never have it being used again? 
So all through the book of Alma, or through much of Alma, they're waging these wars. They're wandering in the wilderness as they're going to fight the Lamanites. And nobody ever thinks, let's, let's take the Liahona with us. Let's use that. Well, according to this narrative, once the Nephites had the interpreters, the Liahona stopped working. So this narrative would actually explain both of these unanswered questions. So the, something to note about, I'm gonna give a few, I'm gonna examine this Fayette Latham account a little more, and I'm going to compare it to some other texts in the Book of Mormon and in the Bible and see what we can, what more we can sort of squeeze out of this story. What, what does this mean? So the Nephite acquisition of the interpreters as reported by Joseph Smith Sr. through Fayette Latham echoes the Jaredite acquisition of the same interpreters. That is the story of the brother of Jared on the mount. So um, before I go further into that, uh, this is um, something that doesn't seem to really get talked about, but has been really striking for me. So the brother of Jared's acquisition of the interpreters is actually a temple text. So first, the brother of Jared is explicitly said to converse with the Lord through the veil. Now, of course, it means the, the metaphysical veil, right? But the concept of conversing through the veil should sound familiar. Um, the Lord puts his hand forth through the veil. The Lord asks, sorry, the brother of Jared, a series of questions designed to test his faith and knowledge. And he begins with a question about his hand. What, what did you see? On passing this test, the brother of Jared then, he's admitted into the presence of the Lord and told that he's redeemed from the fall, which evokes the whole backstory of Adam and Eve, which is, of course, also very temple. Uh, the brother of Jared is given white stones, uh, the interpreters, which uh, the book of Revelation and Joseph Smith both connected with the idea of receiving a new name which no one else knows but the person who receives it. Uh, and the brother Jared then is given a revelation of knowledge that he can't share with others. And this is then what we know as the sealed portion. So, so by the way, I, uh, when I first saw these uh, temple connections in that text, and when I first was really working closely on this story of the Nephite finding of the interpreters by, I think, the guy is Mosiah the first. Uh, and I could talk more about that in the Q&A if we have time. Um, but um, when I was analyzing the brother of Jared's story more, saw these things, I was analyzing this story from Fayette Latham about the Nephites getting the interpreters. I was at that point actually not LDS in the sense that I had left the church. I had gone through, as, as is now pretty fashionable, uh, a spiritual journey, right? Like, like, that led me outside the bounds of Mormondom. And um, I uh, had come to a point where I, uh, I, I'd been an atheist for a while. I'd come to a point where I believed in God again, but I, I, was, I did not believe in Mormonism. And when I started seeing things like this, I was just blown away. Like, I had, I had thought 
that, of course, Joseph Smith didn't know anything about the Temple Endowment, the Nauvoo Endowment, until 1842 when he became a Freemason. It's just, there's so much that's Masonic there. I just thought that was the origin of it. And so to see that back in text that he had dictated in 1829 and in this other story of the interpreters apparently in 1828, he already had many of the elements of the endowment that were you know, coming out from him as a prophet. Uh, I, was, I was quite astonished. This was actually one of the things that uh, started me coming back to the church. The uh, Nephite acquisition of the interpreters, so this story from Fayette Latham actually reflects uh, the story of Moses at Sinai, at different times that Moses was on Sinai. And, and once, we, once we see this, uh, it will help us to draw some other connections between this Fayette Latham account and the story of the brother of Jared. So the Book of Mormon text very often echoes the biblical narrative, and particularly the Exodus narrative from the Bible. And Fayette Latham's uh, narrative here has those same characteristics. It really has a close relationship to the Bible and particularly to the biblical Exodus. So, so think about this phrase that Latham reports uh, the, the man who hold, takes the interpreters into their tabernacle uh, hears from the Lord. The Lord asks him, what have you got in your hand there? So that's just a variant wording on uh, the question that the Lord asks Moses in Exodus 4. Moses is up on Sinai. He's at the burning bush. And the Lord asks him, what is that in thine hand? And this is, it's his staff, right? And this is what the Lord tells him. We'll throw it down on the ground and it turns into a snake, right? So there's one connection in this story. Uh, the Lord tells this man, and again, I think is Mosiah the first in this narrative, to uh, put the interpreters on his face, put your face in his skin. At Sinai, later, after getting the Ten Commandments, Moses covers his face over with a cloth, right? He veils his face. Um, again, he had, uh, in the Latham account, he had been told, put it on your face and put your face in the skin. Um, there are various texts, I only quoted one of them here, uh, put thereon the covering of badger skin. So in the Exodus, both the tabernacle itself and the sacred temple vessels and relics uh, that, that reside in the tabernacle, when they're being transported, they're all supposed to be covered or wrapped in animal skins, specifically badger skins. So we've got um, at least three echoes of the, um, well, and, and the, I forgot to mention, uh, the tabernacle was first built at Sinai, and that's where these commandments are given. Uh, so we have three Sinai echoes in this little story that Fayette Latham gives us about the interpreters. Ron, could I yeah. ask you at this point? So these three items here, and same the others you mentioned when you were talking about the similarities of the temple and God. Yeah. Those are uh, all recollections of Latham or Lapham? Yeah, right. That he got from listening to Joseph Sr. That's that what, right? Yeah, right. Okay. 
And you see these as pointing to the content of the lost pages. How then? So the, the way that I see them pointing to the content of the lost pages is that the Spat Latham is giving Book of Mormon narrative that's not in our extant Book of Mormon text, but that fits into the Book of Mormon text. So Latham appear, appears to be actually quite ignorant about the Book of Mormon. Again, he doesn't use a single Book of Mormon name. I actually omitted where at the beginning he gets the, the opening setting of the Book of Mormon very wrong. If he had read you know, 1 Nephi chapter 1, he would have known that, that he had that quite wrong. Um, but he gives details that answer questions that scholars have raised, where modern scholars have said, you know what, the Book of Mormon raises this question, but it never answers this question. If Fayette Latham is just confabulating this or, or making it up, why is he managing to make up answers that, narratives that answer questions that scholars have said, oh, the Book of Mormon should tell us about this, but it doesn't. And then he's also giving a narrative that parallels the story of the brother of Jared, which I'll come back to, which is another, it's like these two stories are different installments in the history of the same sacred relic, the interpreters. So, so the brother of Jared's story is telling us how the Jaredites got the sacred interpreters. This story that Fate Latham is telling tells how the Nephites got that same sacred relic. Why wouldn't we assume they came through the Mulekites, who were the descendants of the Jaredites? Well, so the Book of Mormon doesn't, so, so that's uh, something that we would have to infer because the Book of Mormon actually says the Jaredites are completely wiped out, and it doesn't say that they got them from, the, that they got the interpreters from the Mulekites. We could, we could posit that as a possibility, but I'm not, I don't know of any text that would indicate it. No, but we, we do understand that the Jaredite records came into the hands of the Nephites through the Mulekites, right? So, so it doesn't, uh, what, it, what it says in Omni, so in Omni it gives us a very brief version of the story of King Mosiah I. And it says that, it doesn't say specifically who found it, but it says, in the days of King Mosiah, a large stone was found and brought to him, and he interpreted it, which is the thing that suggests that he probably had the interpreters, because he's, that's the role of the interpreters is to interpret right, or one major role, and that's what he does in that narrative. It doesn't say that the Mulekites had found them. It says that they're found during his reign, which would suggest that it's after uh, the Mulekites and the Nephites come together as a combined people, and he's reigning over them. So what I'm, I, I'll, I'll go through this, and then I'll, I'll recap a little and see where that leaves us, and we can maybe follow up on that in the Q&A. Okay. So, um, this, this Fayette Latham account of the Nephite acquisition of the interpreters is also, I would argue, a temple text. So the setting is, he says they have a tabernacle. Tabernacle is a portable temple, right? They're on an exodus, they're in between temples. So the, both the Lord and the finder of this object, 
might think is Mosaic first. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm inferring that they likely speak through the veil of the tabernacle. So the presence of God was understood in uh, the Jewish temple to reside in the Holy of Holies behind a veil. Um, the Lord, in this case, uh, he doesn't ask the man a question about his own hand, you know, what the man saw. He asks the man a question about the man's hand. Um, what is that in your hand there? This phrase really got me uh, when I read it. So the man says, uh, when the Lord asks him this question about the object, he says he did not know but had come to inquire. That phrasing struck me as so similar to phrasing in another place where people, God, and others discuss things through the veil. Um, the conversation, as we've seen between these two, echoes the one at the burning bush, uh, and that the fuller story of that in Exodus 3 and 4 is that uh, the Lord had just given Moses his name, which he said had been unknown to the people before that, had been a secret name. So uh, this idea, we, I mentioned earlier how the idea of the white stone is connected for Joseph Smith and for the book of Revelation with a new name. Um, Martin Harris also, uh, this takes a little more explaining. Martin Harris once gave an interview where he was asked if he personally had ever looked into the interpreters. And he said no, and he explained why. He said that um, if someone looks into the interpreters, they can see whatever they desire to see, and he could not get out of his mind the idea of seeing God. That when, when he thought of looking into the interpreters, all he wanted was to see God, and he said he knew that if you saw God and you were not prepared for the sight, like you could, you could die, or something terrible could happen. Um, if Martin Harris had, uh, Martin Harris would have been the scribe, Martin Harris was the scribe for most of the Lost Pages, including the end of the Lost Pages where the Mosiah, the first story appears. So kind of trying to put uh, puzzle pieces together that fit, right? Um, I'm, I'm inferring that, you know, if Martin had encountered that story and the, this man, maybe Mosiah the first, is speaking with the Lord through the veil, he puts on the interpreters, what does he see when he puts on the sacred interpreters while he's talking with the Lord in the tabernacle, he sees the Lord. So that one's more inferential than these others, but these suggest that this is also a kind of temple text, like the story of the brother of Jared acquiring the interpreters. Um, the man then is able to, like the brother of Jared, uh, he's able to see things that most of us can't see. He's able to see hidden things, divine things. Um, so, wow, that came out grainy. Um, so now I'm going to use what we've just talked about to explain this. Okay. Why is this man looking into his hat? Doesn't he know that like a hat is for putting on your head? A hat, like so so a hat is an everyday object that has a function. 
Uh, if any of you remember um, Get Smart, right? There's something really ridiculous about talking into your shoe, right? Um, and that's because a shoe has a defined purpose, right? It goes here. So your, your hat doesn't belong on your face. But the Fayette Latham account that we just looked at can help us to understand what Joseph Smith is doing, what he sees himself as doing. So uh, we, in the um, Latham account, you'll recall, when he asks, when the man asks the Lord, you know, when a man tells the Lord, I don't know what to do with this, right? I've come to inquire. Um, the Lord tells him, put it on your face, right? It's, it's spectacles, or like spectacles. Put your face in an animal skin, and then you'll be able to see, and he, he can see anything, right? So Joseph Smith's hat, uh, turns out people haven't given a lot of thought of what Joseph Smith's hat was made out of, but beaver skin hats were very popular in Joseph Smith's day. So was Joseph Smith's hat, in which he put his seer stone, a beaver skin hat? Uh, there's one account that talks, just one, that talks about the material that Joseph's hat was made of. This is uh, Charles W. Brown. He was a, uh, a historian, in, an early historian in Manchester, where the Smiths were from. And he's a son-in-law of William Stafford, who saw Joseph Smith use the seer stone by placing it in his hat. Soon Joseph joined the circle before the hearth, bearing with him this particular incident, bearing with him the stone, carefully concealed in a well-worn and antiquated beaver. Now, um, this is in uh, Dan Vogel's uh, early Mormon documents. Vogel put the word hat in there in brackets, which is the correct meaning, but I didn't want to insert uh, that. Um, the context shows what he's talking about. Seating himself, he placed his face where his pate ought to have been. So instead of his hat being on his head, here he puts it on his face, or puts his face into the hat. And what kind of hat is it? It's a beaver skin hat. So why does Joseph Smith translate the Book of Mormon by looking into a hat? I don't think this is the complete answer, but I think part of the answer, Joseph Smith didn't, as far as he was concerned, look into a hat. That's not what he sees himself as doing. He saw himself as wrapping a sacred object in animal skin with biblical precedent and looking into that. He's looking into the hat, covering it with animal skins, just like the sacred temple relics of the Jews were wrapped in animal skins, just like the tabernacle itself is wrapped in animal skins. Quick question. Yeah. The story that's going around mostly now, and we're supposed to tell teenagers too, is that to keep that ambient light, that that's why he was looking in a hat, so he could see the stirstones more clearly. Yeah. So I think that's correct, and that and that's why I was saying like like part of the reason why he's use, he's doing this is he's at, he actually sees the significance to the use of the animal skin in particular, but yes, based on other accounts, there's a kind of spiritual light as David Whitmer describes it that he sees when looking into the stone, and that spiritual light is apparently more perceptible if he blocks out distracting physical light. So yes. So uh, what are some implications of what we've talked about, about the lost 
contents, or lost pages contents, for the origin and character of Mormonism. So um, we back to Jan Ships's model. Okay? The lost portion of Joseph Smith referred to the whole thing as the Book of Lehi. It's not all Lehi. It covers the same time period as the replacement for it, with the small plates. It's actually four and a half centuries. It's half of Mormon's abridgment. But in, in any case, the loss of the, the lost portion of the Book of Lehi anticipated the future Hebraic and esoteric phases of Mormonism that the movement later goes through, as talked about by Jan Ships. So these phases weren't mutations, right? These aren't aberrations. Rather, the seed from which Mormonism grew already contained the ideological DNA of the distinctive Christian primitivist, Hebraic, and esoteric hybrid that Mormonism would become. That's there from the beginning. And that's what Jan Ships says. No. No. I'm saying that the Jan Ships is noting that Mormonism goes through these phases. Okay. I, what I'm arguing is that these what happens is not that Mormonism is originally a Christian primitivist movement and then it mutates in a Hebraic direction and then it mutates in an esoteric direction. What I'm arguing is that if you look at the, what we can piece together of the lost Book of Mormon narrative, it's already very Hebraic in emphasis, just like, John, you know, just like Martin Harris is telling John H. Gilbert at the time, right? And then the esoteric things are already foreshadowed. So the temple-related things, temple content is already foreshadowed in, actually, the extant Book of Mormon text, the brother of Jared, and in the story of the finding of the, the interpreters, apparently from the lost pages. So, yeah, so it's, it's all already there. It just needs to blossom. Thank you. Yeah. The 116, you wanted to tell us about. <laughs> a different number. Yeah, so uh, people have suggested before that the number 116 might be wrong. Um, and the, the reason that had been given previously is that there's, if that is the correct number, then there's a very interesting or strange coincidence surrounding that number. So, you know, there's, with, there are two early Book of Mormon manuscripts, surviving manuscripts. One is the original manuscript. This is what is, this is what results from the translation process. The scribe writes down the words. Those words are written on this manuscript. That's, that's the first manuscript, the original manuscript. Later, as they're publishing, about to publish the book, Joseph insists that they don't give the original to the printer. They need to create a sect because of this whole thing, incident, right? So Joseph um, insists that they make a copy. So they make a handwritten copy of the manuscript. That's the printer's manuscript. So when Joseph is uh, writing a preface to, for the published version, right, they're using the printer's manuscript to, they're getting that ready to give to the publisher. Joseph is adding to that manuscript a preface explaining more about the book 
so that people can understand why the book says the Book of Mormon on the first page and then I Nephi immediately after that. Right? He has to explain the Lost Pages incident. He says there that there were 116 Lost Pages. But if you look at the length of the small plates, so the replacement for the Lost Pages in the printer's manuscript, it comes to exactly 116 pages and then the top two lines of page 117. So it's been posited by other scholars that Justice Smith doesn't actually know. Like they didn't, they hadn't, probably hadn't numbered the pages of the manuscript. And even if they had, they didn't have that manuscript there to count or to look at the numbers on anymore. He doesn't know. He's trying to write this preface. He wants a ballpark number. And so what does he do? He says, well, this is the part that replaced that manuscript. It's probably about the same length. It's 116 pages. It would have been almost certainly longer than that because the small plates are just a thumbnail sketch of the history, whereas the lost manuscript was Mormon's entire abridgment of nearly half. It, it was nearly half of Mormon's entire abridgment. He, he abridges uh, 920 years total of Nephite history, about 450 of those years, almost exactly half, were in the Lost Pages. So it should be longer than 116 pages. Also, uh, Martin Harris had a brother, Emer Harris, who came to Utah. He's actually a direct uh, ancestor of Dallin Harris Oaks, which is what the H stands for. Um, he spoke at a state conference in Provo on April 6, 1856, and he said in the, uh, it's in the state conference minutes that Martin had scribed near 200 pages of manuscript for Joseph before the manuscript was lost. Now he already knew, we know that he knew the number 116 because it was, he was a missionary for years who carried around some of those original copies of the Book of Mormon that had the number 116 in it, but he rejected that number despite that, and thought that it was near 200 pages. And then there, there, are other, there are other lines of evidence that I'm putting into my book that all point to, uh, well, for instance, the amount of time that they spent working on the translation. In order to have only produced 116 pages in that time period, they would have had to have been going at about one-fourth or less the rate that, of translation that they were going at in, through that whole period that they were going at later when Oliver Cowdery arrived. So there are several reasons to think the manuscript was actually longer. We lost more than 116 pages. Uh, there, was, there was a question right behind you. Uh, yeah, just trying to put what you said together. The, the importance of of Lincoln's uh, yeah. account is that he was getting that information from Joseph Smith Sr. Right. And so I'd like to assume that you, you're positing that Joseph Smith Sr. had insight into the lost pages. Right. Because he had read those lost pages or because he had conversations with his son. So, so I think that he would probably not have been able to actually read them. Martin Harris borrowed them, took them up to Palmyra. They would have been in Joseph Smith Sr.'s region but Martin was only supposed to show them to members of his own family. We know that he shows them to others, but there's nothing to indicate that he shows them to Joseph Sr. So what I'm positing is that he hears from Martin and or Joseph Jr. about the contents of the Lost Pages. 
And, I, and I'm also positing, as I mentioned earlier, that, um, that this is actually why, if, if you look in Latham's interview account, he dwells heavily on that early part of the narrative up to this point about the interpreters. And then he summarizes the entire rest of the Book of Mormon in two or three sentences after that. He's, for whatever reason, either Latham or his informant, Joseph Smith Sr., has keyed in just on the part of the Book of Mormon narrative that corresponds to the manuscript that was lost and doesn't really say much about the rest of it. I think that's, I posit that that's Joseph Sr. knowing that once the book comes off the press, Latham can read the rest of the story for himself, but he won't be able to get a very full narrative of this earlier period, and hence he gives more detail at that period. And there are other things in it besides what I've covered uh, that, again, like, they, they're not in our extant Book of Mormon text, but they fit as if they, it's like they should be, you know? So, yes? Maybe I'm the only one here, but I'm not familiar with the term temple text. Yeah. Is everybody else familiar with that? I don't know when it says the temple text you refer to. So, so Nib Hugh Nibley used to use the term. It's, uh, it was my shorthand way of saying that this is something that evokes or parallels what we have in the temple endowment. Yes. That's, that's all I'm saying by it. Yeah. yeah. Um, first, what's the date of the Lapham account? Right, so, so he's, he's pretty late relative to the time of the interview. So he, his account is published in 1870. Now, we don't know uh, when he wrote it, uh, Mark Ashurst McGee, who's with the Joseph Smith Papers, is the person who has probably done the most extensive analysis of Latham's entire narrative. And he's pointed out areas where Latham appears to be inaccurate or where his biases are just so thick that they're coloring what he's saying. But uh, Mark had concluded uh, independently from anything that I'm doing uh, two things. Uh, one, he uh, concluded, he, he believes that Fayette Latham must have kept contemporaneous notes of the conversation because there are just so many things that he gets right where we have other inside sources that are not published by 1870. 1870 sounds late compared to 1830, but it's before most of the interviews happen where people go back and interview survivors back in Palmyra and so on in the 1880s. And it's before some of the, the family sources like the, the Catherine Smith Salisbury interview and so on. Latham has some inside source of information. If it's not Joseph Smith Sr., like he says it was, it's somebody else who was in the inner circle because he just he knows too much to not have some kind of inside information. Um, secondly, Mark has suggested that the, uh, I, I initially got the idea that Mark, that this story about the finding of the interpreters had been in the Lost Pages from Mark Ashurst McGee. That was a suggestion that he had made. He pointed out this text to me, and then I've done a lot of further analysis of that part and these other parts about the, the Passover, uh, the Lehi, according to Latham, having a building a tabernacle during his journey 
and other elements that would fit into the Book of Mormon text that we have, but just are not there. So does that, does that answer? Yeah, I, I okay. understand. Wouldn't would we have some grounds to assume that uh, that Joseph Jr. might have shared some of this with Joseph Sr. at yeah. family gatherings? Yeah. So, so, yeah. I would suspect that he did. And we know that Joseph Sr., from other accounts, that Joseph Sr. had a particular interest in the interpreters. He was fascinated with the interpreters, and that, that would fit then with Joseph Jr. telling him this narrative that I went over about the interpreters, and him then being very interested in retelling it to Fayette Latham. Well, that would fit with the uh, earlier Smith family business of digging. Right, right. Yeah. Um, right here. Yeah, I don't know how many pages, like you say, it might be more than one sixteen. But why do we think Joseph Smith would give them all to Martin Harris, and not just twenty pages? You know, I I don't know why he I don't know why he gave him the did whole. He give all that he had? So so there's there's a little controversy over this based on a passage in section ten in the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 10 is talking to Joseph Smith about the manuscript loss, and it says, it talks about the manuscript that was taken, and it talks about the portion that you have retained, that you've translated and that you have retained. Now, there are some scholars now who are reading that to mean that Joseph actually translated more pages, gave Martin Harris a portion of those, kept the remainder, those were the ones retained. I actually think that that, I, I think that that is a misreading based on a mistaken dating of DNC 10. So the assumption that people are making in that interpretation is that DNC 10 is given right after the manuscript loss. But when uh, Joseph and Ol particularly Oliver and others compiled the Book of Commandments and then the Doctrine and Covenants, they place section 10 well after the manuscript loss. They place it in May of 1829 as Joseph and Oliver are, are well into their translation work on the Book of Mormon text that we still have. So in that, re, in that context, the part that you've translated and that you've retained is most likely the part that comes after the lost pages. Joseph Smith gives this manuscript away, it's gone, he resumes translating. This revelation comes a couple months after he resumes translating. It's talking about the part he had translated since then and had not let out of his hands. He retained it. And so uh, there, there is some disagreement on what that means. But there's nothing in Joseph Smith's own accounts about this to indicate that he withheld part of the manuscript. He makes it sound, at least, like he just gives the whole manuscript to Martin Harris and Harris loses it. And, and is that, I guess back to the original question then, it would have been in a, in a form that would make it difficult to divide it up and say, here, take this bunch, or what, what did it actually look like? Was it a pile of papers? So there are people who've studied the sort of format of the extant Book of Mormon manuscript a lot and how it was actually, like I think the pages were actually cut somehow and then um, 
they were put into gatherings and like sort of sewn together with these. I, I'm not sure though at what point in the process that happened. I don't know, do they, do they create a gathering of pages and then the scribe writes on it or do they write on it and then like sew it together? I, somebody like Robin Jensen at the Joseph Smith papers would know that sort of okay. detail about the paper I have a lot of uh, Scouts, uh, it didn't make sense, but he specifically said they would take gatherings, 18 pages, pull them over, and then write on them as they went through, like a paper, paper like this, they write on them, go through, and then later they stitched them together. They actually have some of the stitches. Yeah. Okay, so he says they did it later. And then they did the exact same thing on the uh, printer's manuscript. So it's pretty, pretty clear that that would be the same format that they would have used on the lost pages joseph doesn't seem to have been afraid that anything would happen he seems to be assuming that martin harris is just going to show it to this handful of family members the lord said it was okay it must be okay he he doesn't seem concerned um, was there a question here as well? Yeah, so I guess kind of like Joseph Smith Sr. I'm fascinated by the interpreters and uh, yeah. what you're mentioning about the, like, the continuity of those, those interpreters being passed down through time was an important answer question. Yeah. I'm wondering why, why do we have to consider them the same interpreters? We know that you know, there was like the Spanish school, but there was also a stone which was found himself that looked just the same way. Right. Right. So in um, section 17, section 17 of the Doctrine and Covenants is a revelation that was given uh, in early June of 1829 to the, the prospective three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, right? As they're approaching having their witness experience, the Lord addresses them in this revelation and in the Revelation, it refers to uh, the interpreters as, that, that they will see in their experience as the Urim and Thummim, which was given to the brother of Jared on the mount. So it's indicating that the same interpreters that Joseph Smith had used, along with the plates and everything, the ones that the three witnesses were going to see were the same ones that had been given to the brother of Jared on the mound. Now, e even if we didn't have an indication of continuity like that, we would still, it would, it would seem to me at least, that we should still have some kind of narrative in the Book of Mormon about, even if the Nephites had their own new set of interpreters, where is the story about that? You can look, the Book of Mormon is in many ways obsessed with sacred relics and the provenance of sacred relics. You can trace the the small plates, who would have possessed the small plates, from Nephi down to Moroni across a span of a, over a thousand years, you can trace every one of the, per, the people in that chain of possession who passed on those plates. So if the Book of Mormon is so concerned with the transmission of the sacred record, in that case, the sacred relic, why is it what does it have no concern in the extant text for where the Nephites get their interpreters from? Well, most likely just because we're, that, that appears to have happened very early in the narrative 
we're missing the detailed version of that narrative. I think there's every reason to think that that story was there, but in any case, section 17 indicates that it's the same interpreters given to the brother of Jared and they're handed down. That's just that it was the same way as the stone? Like, not like it was the same way, but that worked in the same manner or something? I, I, I'm, are you? In, in section 17. So, so it says that, I mean, I'm sure we could pull up the, somebody could pull up the wording. Um, my, my phone is probably about to die here. It is, it's got you a couple said, percent. You said it but, just right. um, in verse one. So, so what does it say? Um, well, behold I say unto you that you must rely upon my word, which if you do with full purpose of heart, you shall, you shall have a view of the plates and also of the breastplate, the sword of Laban, the Urim and Thummim, which were given to the brother of Jared upon the mount when he talked with the Lord face to face and the miraculous directors which were given to Lehi while in the wilderness on the borders of the Red Sea. So, so, it, so it's identifying the interpreters they would see as the ones, that, that they are the same ones given to the brother of Jared. So, since most of the questions have come from here, I haven't even looked over here, so if somebody here over here has raised their hand, I wouldn't have seen. So. When in the world is the book coming out? Your book yeah. <laughs> It's coming out years ago. Um, uh, I thought. Um, no, I'm, I'm pretty focused on right now on getting that done by the end of this year and into the hands of the publisher. And they are setting the publication date symbolically as September 22nd, 2019. So yeah, not, not too far out in the future. Um, just to kind of sum things up here, uh, you, your presentation relies mainly on the account left by Lapham. Right. Uh, could you uh, refresh our memory about some one, two, or three other sources? Sure. That, I, mean, I think you went into it, but we were so overwhelmed by Lapham that we forgot the other ones. Sure, sure, sure. So, so one that gives a fairly minor point uh, about what was in the Lost Pages is an account from uh, Franklin D. Richards it was in. It was published in the Church Magazine, the Contributor. In I've got the date, like 1890 yeah. something. That's where he overhears Joseph talking in Nauvoo about how Ishmael was a descendant of Ephraim. So that's a little textual detail. Uh, there's another account that I mentioned, uh, but I didn't mention the specifics about what it says on the lost 116 pages. But Emer Harris, Martin's brother, also, when he's speaking at this state conference in 1856, he gives a little bit about the Mulekites and that their narrative that's not in our extant Book of Mormon text. It's, it's not a ton, but it's more than what we have already about the Mulekites. Uh, and he's, he's talking about their escape from the Babylonians uh, during the invasion, Babylonian invasion. There's, um, there's another account that uh, overlaps with the Franklin D. Richards account, but it's from, it comes from a totally different source about uh, Ishmael's lineage. Um, Martin Harris had a couple other associates who gave details from, the, well, that are, again, not like in the Latham account, they're not explicitly said by the author to be from the lost pages, 
but they give information about what's going on in the Book of Mormon narrative that fits really, really well and sheds a new light on the text, but is not in our extant text. So one of these guys is uh, uh, Franklin, Francis Gladden Bishop. He was a very controversial figure. He, he probably got himself excommunicated from the church more times than anyone else in the early history of the church. He was very good at it, um, but he, he, he kept coming back. You know. um, in the 18, early 1850s, when Harris is living in Kirtland, Gladden Bishop is living in Kirtland, Harris becomes a follower of Gladden Bishop. Gladden Bishop is starting to make prophetic claims. And we know from Gladden Bishop's writings, things that he says, that Martin Harris feeds him information about the lost pages. In at least one place, he says it explicitly. In other places, it's implicit. He gives a lot of details about the Book of Mormon that we only get in that way from one other source, and that's Martin Harris. So for instance, Gladden Bishop claims to have seen the golden plates, and he gives a description of the plates, um, and he says that um, the, the engravings had like a dark, on, on the gold, had like a dark substance in the grooves of the engravings to make it stand out against the gold. We have other sources saying that the Book of Mormon witnesses had said this. Then Gladden Bishop says that the stack of plates was something like eight inches by six inches, but only four inches high. There's only one other person in the world who says they were only four inches high, and it's Martin Harris. And Harris happens to be a follower of Gladden Bishop at the time. Everybody else says the stack is higher than that. But uh, Gladden Bishop appears to be, on, on that point and many others, he appears to just be taking his information from Harris. So Gladden Bishop says some things about the Book of Mormon narrative, about the sort of Laban and so on, that would fit our available narrative, but are not in it, that I, I argue in my manuscript, he's getting this information from Harris, just like he's getting this other information from Harris. There, there are also a couple, actually there are a number of sources, but there, in, in the extant text, there are a number of passages, a couple in particular, where it's, it appears to be alluding back to a narrative from the lost pages. So Mosiah 10 or 11, King Noah is building a tower on the hill that was north of the land Shilom. And it says in the text, this was the same hill that the children of Nephi had used as a resort, like a, presumably a place of refuge, when at the time they fled out of the land. It doesn't explain what in the world it's talking about because we're supposed to already know what it's talking about. Apparently this is part of the earlier narrative we're supposed to be like, oh, it was that hill, yeah, that the children of Nephi fled to. But the only indication we have that there was such an event is that allusion back to it. But that appears to be alluding to something from the Lost Pages. There's another one in Alma 11 that talks about Aminadi interpreting the writing of the temple, the writing by the finger of God on the wall of the temple. Again, it's a story that we're apparently supposed to know, but we don't. Uh, it's apparently one from the Lost Pages. So there are places in the Book of Mormon text, outside the Book of Mormon text, a couple in the early revelations, that just give us different puzzle pieces. What I'm trying to do, take enough of the puzzle pieces, gather all the ones I can find, 
see where they fit together, and then see if I can infer, like in a picture puzzle, right? Like, what, what's the pattern here? What is this a picture of? Okay. So that's sort of a rough metaphor for what I'm, yeah, what I'm trying to do. Okay, that's good. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Don. I think we're at the end of our time. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.